Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. And as always, thank you to our season sponsors, Axtel Expressions and the Tangent Bound Network. Find fantastic podcasts at tangentboundnetwork.com and all your entertainment needs are at axtel.com. Welcome, everybody, to a week of shows. It has been two years exactly to the week since we have done an entire week. And this year, we're focusing on a theme. Last year, uh, two years ago, of course, it was to count up to our 100th, and we're not exactly at 200 yet. So this year, I wanted to do something really special, really different. Those of you that know me know my love for country music knows no bounds. This week, ten-polled by some of the industry's biggest legends, I am thrilled to present a taste of everything country. From songwriters to new artists to subgenre superstars, I am so excited to welcome many guests, at least two per show, over the next five days. Today, we welcome a gentleman who is a legend in country music broadcasting. Mr. Ralph Emery is a personal hero of mine. Known for hosting Nashville Now on the Nashville Network, Emery helmed the most important country music television show of the late 80s all the way through the 90s. His show, seen by millions, was the make-or-break moment for many of today's top country artists. In that way, he did uh, for country artists what Johnny Carson did for comedians. He always loved welcoming newcomers to his show, Mr. Emery did, and it is in that spirit, though I am no Ralph Emery, that I begin this week with Kaylee Rutland. Her six-song EP out now is titled That Side of Me, and I have to tell you, when I heard this album, I was absolutely completely bowled over, and you can hear my amazement in our interview. The title track is a driving song about being happy in love, but the album has shades of all colors. One of my favorite tracks is the cover of Adele's Rumor Has It, which is appropriately saved for the last number on the six-song CD. Just this past weekend, Ms. Rutland played on the Chevy main stage at the State Fair of Texas, and I hope she was given the rousing ovation this album demonstrates that she deserves. Here now to tell us about collaborating with her producer and co-writers, our interview with Kaylee Rutland. Kaylee Rutland, welcome to Talk for Two. How are you? Hey, I'm doing so well. Thank you for chatting with me. Well, thank you. I have one word to describe your EP, and that is damn. Wow. <laughs> wow, wow, I hope that's wow. that's a good thing. <laughs> it is. It's amazing. It's amazing. What, uh, what made you decide the time was right to do it? Some of these songs have been in the works for a couple of years now, and there's been several that I wrote back when I first moved to Nashville that have just been really close to my heart. And others on the EP are brand new, and I just wrote them this summer. And it was just, I don't know, some of the songs, I think, fit together in a certain way because they all bring to the table different feelings and different situations that we've all been through. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited that this is finally the time when I can get some of this music out. That is wonderful. A lot of new artists release EPs before they release LPs, long plays. Um is that a business decision or is it, is it a creative decision to say it's got to get out or is it a business decision to, to keep the album smaller? I'm sure it varies from artist to artist. Um, for me, obviously all I have released at this point are singles and EPs mm-hmm. and it is a bit of a mix between the creative and the business. Um, I think at this point in the stage that I'm at, it 
makes more sense, again, creatively and business-wise, to kind of put out smaller bits of music. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, I think that makes it a lot easier to kind of, you know, share it with more people as, you know, if, if people hear the name Kaylee Rutland for the first time, hopefully, you know, I can give that to them and say, hey, like, here's just a handful of songs. And hopefully, you know, that can kind of grow the interaction and share the music with more people. Mm -hmm. That's really, really cool. I want to talk about the collaboration on this album, uh, because you have Minnie Murphy on half the tracks on this album. And of course, your mentor, Jamie O'Neill, produced it. What was it like to collaborate uh, in, in the songwriting process? It's always so fun, especially with those two. Um, I met Jenny, or Jamie back when I was in high school, and um, I wrote three songs with her back then, and she produced them. And I ended up moving here to Nashville about six months after that, and she's been producing and writing with me ever since. And so she and Minnie have become people that I write with all the time now, these several years later. And so it's always so fun and familiar to write with them. And several of the songs on the EP um, were written with people who I may have met for the first time walking into the room. And that's just as much fun, but in a totally different way, because it's like you're walking in and you're making a new friend. And then it's like, all right, I've never met you before now. And let's sit down and, you know, just kind of spill your guts to each other as you bring out all these emotions to create a new song. So it's really been an interesting process, and I absolutely love it. I say this a lot when we're talking with uh, singers and, and songwriters especially, but uh, to me, it's the ultimate chicken-in-the-egg kind of conundrum because I, I don't know music. I don't know music. I can hear melodies of songs I know in my head, but I can't write it. I can't hear new melodies in my head. But I'll sometimes come up with a lyric or two, and I'll write it down. I think, oh, that would be a good idea for song lyrics. But what comes first when you can do both? What comes first for you? Uh, uh, The music or the lyrics, or or is there, there a division of labor there? What is that? It's always kind of a back and forth. Um, But... For me, and especially when I'm just writing a song by myself, mm-hmm. it'll start with maybe a phrase that I hear on the street or on TV or that I even say out loud talking to a friend. Um, and I'll kind of, you know, just sue with an idea, less so the word-by-word lyrics, but just sort of the overall idea and theme of the song. And so once I have that in mind, I kind of move over to the music side and figure out the chord progression and melody, and I just grab my guitar and work through a little bit. And then after that is when the lyrics kind of come in. And I definitely find, and again, at least for me, it's so much easier to fit lyrics into an existing melody than to try to change a melody for lyrics because you can have different syllables per line if you do that. And so it's always interesting. It really is kind of a back and forth when it comes to the lyrics and the music for me. That's wonderful. I want to go back to Jamie for a second. Jamie had a great career, three-time Grammy nominee. She's had a great career for many years. What do you think she saw in you that you ended up being someone she took under her wing? What What was the bond between you two? You know, I love that you asked that question because it's so funny. Um, the thing that comes to mind is something that my mom has said, is that Jamie is my Nashville mom. Um, That's sweet. Back Yeah, I absolutely love that. And back when I was in high school, 
and I met her for the first time. I mean, I was this shy, scrawny 17-year-old, and we met and started songwriting, and she definitely helped, I think, kind of coax me out of my shell a little bit mm-hmm. and helped me become more comfortable with sharing my ideas in a room of other writers. And then, like, that afternoon, we went, like, prom dress shopping. Like I said, I was <laughs> in high school. So with Jamie, it's always been such a great mix with the the music and the personal life. And so that's always kind of that bond that we've had. And then as the years have gone on, she, I think, knows more than anyone how to bring the best out of me vocally in the studio. Mm-hmm. And so working with her is always just an absolute blast and an honor, really. Yeah, that's cool. And it brings a question to mind that I had written down and I, I thought was kind of st- stupid to ask, but because it, it's hard, it was hard for even me to write this, but her being Australian, is there... Is there a sensibility, an Australian flavor, if you will, that, that she brings to country music? Is there a, a, a way country is done in Australia that is kind of set in her bones that has uh, uh, found its way to you? Or, or is that something I'm making up in my head? Is there an international influence between you and her? That is an interesting question. I've never really thought about that. And obviously, Jamie has spent so much of her life in America that it's not something I always remember, even when I'm hanging out with her. But mm-hmm. I could see where that would definitely come in because Jamie, and this might just be who she is, or it could be definitely from where she was born, but she's so unique. And when it comes to the creative process, there's just something different and like always a creative energy that she has that I don't see in a lot of other people. So that very much could be from that, or it might just be who she is. That's, that's, Really interesting to think about. It really is. And all of these songs that you guys are working on that she's helping you produce, they're getting airplay. I know that um, one of them has received over 100,000 streams on Spotify, and another still is, is doing well at, at Radio Disney Country out in Los Angeles. The press release specifically mentioned Radio Disney Country, and it, it begs the question from me, is that your target audience? Are you are you trying to target a younger market? Uh, how did Radio Disney end up with, with your music? Yeah, absolutely. So I got the chance to go out to L.A. Um, last fall, and it was actually my first time even being in California, which is such a cool, exciting reason to go to California and the West Coast for the first time. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I got to go out there, meet them, and play a couple of my original songs. And as that happened, I got to have a great conversation with Phil Greeny at Radio Disney Country. And he spoke so much to how Radio Disney Country is so committed to kind of helping develop young female artists who have had a more difficult history of making it in the music industry. Mm-hmm. And especially when it comes to their target audience, you know, Radio Disney um, and the junior kind of category is more based on children for their target audience, yeah. whereas Radio Disney Country is more, I guess, about the 16 to 24-year-old-ish span. Mm-hmm. And I would absolutely say that that is my target audience, especially for me being a part of that group myself right now as a country music fan. Absolutely. No, oh, and it... It's interesting. You brought in you brought in the gender thing, and I I, I, I like to avoid that only because, um, you know, I just think it can be sexist for me, a male, to, to bring that up <laughs> when, when you know I don't bring that up with the male guys I, I interview. But since you you brought it up, 
you know, it's interesting to me that there are so, that there are so many great female artists in country music that don't get the airplay they deserve. Yet females, I think, I think I read, I could be wrong, are a larger part of the fan base of country music than males. I've met more women that are that are Luke Bryan and Garth Brooks and and Eric Church fans than you know the the rednecks in the you know backwards hats and the and the camos tailgating. So if if females make up more fans, why aren't they making up more of the artists? I think that is such an interesting question. And I think it is getting better, too. I'm not always going to know why, but I think the position that I'm in, again, is someone who's a little younger and a little younger. I don't know. I'm hoping, I guess, that we're going to continue to see growth in the number of artists that are female. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, again, as a country music fan who is a woman, I absolutely will turn on the radio and like jam out to some Luke Bryan or Dirk Bentley or Brad Paisley. Mm -hmm. But I think when you have, you know, a woman singing a song like Miranda Lambert or Kelsey Ballerini or Carrie Underwood, that brings in a unique perspective that, you know, I think women can relate to when you're listening to the radio and this woman comes on and is singing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm definitely hoping that, We'll be seeing more of that in the future, more of a growth. I hope so. And I, I, you know, as somebody in the same age group as you, I know so. I kind of feel it in my bones that that's the direction it has to go to survive because um, this was brings in something else I want to think about, which is thank you for focusing on the songwriting, for focusing on the words and the lyrics and the music. That was something I was absolutely taken with with your album. There's so much that is just overproduced garbage and you 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 guys hit the sweet spot because yes you have production and you have some technology in there and some modern sounds but it, it doesn't distract from any of the lyrics or, or anything that you've done as the artist and I want to thank you for doing authentic country music in that way I really appreciate that um it's definitely a balance because you want to be I say you I definitely want to remain you know, contemporary and commercial, but at the same time, like, at my core as an artist is an appreciation for traditional country music, and Mm -hmm. the reason I first fell in love with country music back growing up was because of the stories that you hear, and that it's so much more of a storytelling genre than anything else. Like, that's the magic of country music, and so I hope that, you know, that's something I can continue to remain true to throughout my career. Well, there is one song I want to talk about that that is not anyone that you wrote, but it's at the end of the album, and I've had it on repeat several times. I've had other stuff of yours on repeat. Don't misunderstand me. But (laughs) I want to know how you came to do that, that banjo, mandolin, guitar-infused version of Rumor Has It. Oh, my gosh. That one is so much fun. I can't even begin to tell you. Um (laughs) So one of my favorite things as an artist is performing live. It's probably my favorite thing that I get to do mm-hmm. because it's always so high energy and that's when you really get to connect with the band on stage with you and the people in the crowd. And so, you know, as an artist, I'm always wanting to kind of vamp up the live performance show and add new songs. And while most of my live set is always country, like 90, 95% of it, mm-hmm. sometimes it's been really fun to throw in, you know, something from a different genre that maybe we countrify or something that I can make my own. And so I was sitting down with my band in Texas talking through a couple songs that we could consider doing like that. And I think 
it was my drummer who came up with the idea. We were talking about Adele. And I think he mentioned, well, how about Rumor Has It? And the minute he said it, we were all like, oh, my gosh, that's it. And so we sat down and kind of made our own unique arrangement. There's a banjo player in the band mm-hmm. who really, you know, was able to kind of take that somewhere else live. And so in the recording, that's a group of incredible, talented studio musicians that Jamie put together. And so it's really kind of a cool collaboration with the people I get to work with in Texas and those in Tennessee that kind of put together this really fun country version of an Adele song that we all love so much. Would you ever dare cover any of your country idols like Sarah Evans? Like, I'd love to hear your voice on Born to Fly. Like, I just, you know, I would love to hear that. Okay, that is the, there's no way you didn't know. Born to Fly was the very first country song I ever sang, actually. Really? It is. I still think to this day that is probably the song that made me fall in love with country music. I'm not even kidding. That song is maybe my favorite song of all time. I heard it covered. This is going to be so weird. I heard it covered uh, on a show in Branson, Missouri. Now, we are both too young to know who what Branson is, but I'm assuming you, <laughs> you, you might as well. And I just, for years, I never know, knew who sang it. I just knew that this girl, it was the Shoji Tabuchi show in Branson, Missouri. And uh, and then I found it years later on iTunes, the, 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 the right Sarah Evans version of it, the full five-minute one with like the two-minute instrumental at the end. And, right, uh, yeah. And I just, you know, I, I love her to death, too. And I see she's one of your influences. Growing up, did you get any flack? I know you're from Texas, or at least the, the number you're calling from is a Texas number. Um, growing up, did you get any... I'm sorry, there's feedback here. Um, did you get any flack for, for liking country music or being from the South? Was it kind of commonplace? I think it always depended on who it was coming from. Um, for the most part, everyone around me has always been really supportive, so... My family in particular, um, even if they don't listen to country music on a regular basis, they're always the first ones to show up at our shows and listen to all the country bands performing. Um, In high school and even a little bit now that I live in Nashville, you know, I'll always have friends that it's not necessarily their favorite genre. And you even get people who are like, oh, I hate country music. But it's always interesting because I think those people are the ones that when they come out, to a live concert by anyone, you know, like it could be CMA Fest or uh, the ACM Awards and any time that someone I know who claims their hate of country music and they get an opportunity to watch a live country show, those are always the ones who change their minds after and are like, oh, you know what, like that's, that's actually really good country music. Like maybe I didn't realize there was that much to it. So it's definitely something that you know, I have gotten teased a little bit by those friends, but those also tend to be the ones that end up converting the country fans, in my opinion. Well, I think country, and I, I'm also, in it for another website that I work with, I review a lot of concerts, usually a couple a month. And to me, I don't know if it's just because I've been a country fan for, for years, but they are the best live shows out of all of them. I mean, ACDC and Guns N' Roses can keep their live production and pyrotechnics and whatever else have you give me give me a country music concert over over any other genre i saw i saw a very well-known acapella group and they were great and they tried to add you know spark to it but it just country is the best to see live i don't know maybe i'm in the minority when i see it but it's it's like going to some kind of music church whenever you go to a country oh that's a great description i love that no i totally agree with that yeah i think it's always 
it's always something that's good no matter how built up it is or no matter how raw it is. Mm-hmm. Like, you can have a guy in a cowboy hat and dust his guitar sitting on a stool in, you know, like, on a sidewalk on Broadway. And that live country music is, you know, that's when you really get down to, like, the lyrics that they're singing. But then you can have a full show where you get that, maybe a steel guitar or a banjo, and you can really kind of appreciate those traditional elements as well. And it's, mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. It's one of the best genres when it comes to live music. Absolutely. Now, my last question for you, because I know you've probably got a lot of other interviews, a lot of people clamoring to talk to you. I want to ask this, because you're in a position now where you've released EPs and, and you're on your way up. You're getting all of these accolades and, and notices from Billboard and and uh, down there in Nashville as well. I'm curious what your advice is to somebody that wants to do this and do it for a living. How how can somebody at your at the stage of your career, A, decide to do it, and B, actually make it a living? I think one of the biggest things that I've experienced in that is, again, like that live performance. Um, Mm -hmm. Back when I was in high school, I mean, I think I knew in my own head that one day I wanted to move to Nashville and that I always knew like country music was going to be my career. And it was back in those days, I think, where more people were kind of like, oh, this is just a hobby that Kaylee's doing. Like she likes to sing, but. Mm-hmm. She'll go to college and do something practical. <laughs> and I think I think that's where people get caught up. And so I think that's the main advice that I would give to anyone who's in my situation is that there's nothing impractical about it. First, mm-hmm. like it is a very viable career and it does not need to be validated because the music industry is one of the hugest and most expanding industries in our country. Yeah. And so you have I think you have to remember that and not let any naysayers way your opinion and again back to that live performing like always always find a place that you can perform again whether you're setting up your guitar on the sidewalk on broadway or you're going to a writer's night at any local cafe anywhere that you can perform get out there get doing it because that's how you get to meet people and make connections and that's how your music gets heard that is wonderful. Kaylee Rutland, this was a great conversation. I, I, I love, you know, I, I have to say this at the end. We've had a lot of people, I'm not patting myself on the back when I say this, but um, we've had, I, I try to do what Nashville now did back in the day, which is have a nice mix of, of established stars and uh, up and comers. And I have to say, you can run circles around a lot of the big names that we've had on this show with your voice and your talent and your songwriting capabilities. There are big, big things ahead for you. And I'm so so glad that you made the time to come on this show, and thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to talk with me. I really had a blast talking with you, Kaylee. Thank you so much. The download link for That Side of Me is in the description below. And now it gives me great pleasure to present Mr. Ralph Emery. And I got to tell you, I'm nervous because I want to be a great broadcaster and do a great introduction for this man. Because growing up, I would watch tapes of his Nashville Now show, his deep, identifiable voice, somehow affirmative yet comforting. It was the perfect pairing with country music. Two years ago, I sat down with Mr. Emery's co-host, Steve Hall, who puppeteered Emery's comic foil, Shotgun Red. Ever since that time, I had wanted to sit down with the man himself. He's such an inspiration to me. To tell you what a genuine man Mr. Emery is, I sent my request to a colleague of his that works at a management firm. The very next day, I get a call from a Nashville number. I have a feeling, but I missed the call by a fraction of a second. 
I didn't think it would be him, but I really wasn't expecting a call from anybody in Nashville. But when I listened to my voicemail, there it is, sure as my ear can hear it, the unmistakable voice of Ralph Emery. I called him back to set up our interview appointment, but instead of a quick call, he chatted with me for 15 minutes, taking an interest in my show, who could believe it, and my love of country music. 20 minutes is not nearly enough time to go over this man's entire career, the stations he has worked for, and the shows he has hosted, but boy, do we try. I do not want to waste another second. Here now, what an honor to tell us why he loved giving country stars a platform, our interview with Ralph Emery. Ralph Emery, welcome to Talk for Two. It is an honor to have you. How are you, sir? Well, I'm okay. I uh, have a few medical problems, but uh, we're working on those. Oh, that's... I'm glad to hear we got... I have something called neuropathy. Neuropathy. And uh, I'm going to have some tests for that. Where do you get Uh, it? Where do you... Sorry? Where in your body is the neuropathy? It's in my uh, it's in my legs. Yeah. Particularly my right leg. Yeah, my mother has the exact same thing, so I know that all too well and, and I wish you well with it. Well, the reason we're here today is to talk about your career. And one of the things oh. I've always been so curious about is when were you first exposed to country music? Well, uh, I lived with my grandparents because my mother and father divorced when I was about four or five. And uh, my grandfather, Fuquay, my mother's people, I lived with them, and they loved the Grand Ole Opry and always listened to it on Saturday night. And uh, I loved them and I loved the radio. I always loved the radio. So anyway... uh, I found my baby book, and unfortunately, I found it after my mother passed away because there were some things in it that I would have included in my book, including, uh, it says, uh, name the baby's favorite radio station, and it said WSM. And so I imagine uh, I, I came... Uh, to like country music at a very, very early age. Wonderful. That is that is so cool. And what age did you start in radio? I know your journey of... I started radio when I was 18. Wow. What station? Uh, WTPR in Paris, Tennessee. Your Dixie neighbor. Yes, And you were close to the age I am now when you started at that favorite station of yours, WSM. Yes, I worked at a number of radio stations before I got to WSM. I started at WTPR in Paris, Tennessee. I then moved to Nashville to WNAH. From there, I moved to Franklin, Tennessee at WAGG. From there, I moved to... These are the AM days before FM. I moved to WSIX in Nashville as the morning man. From there, I moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, at WLCS, the number one station there. They heard about my work and offered me a job with more money, and so I went down there for about a month. And I got a call from another radio station in Nashville, and WMAK, and they said, uh, 
uh, why'd you go to Baton Rouge? I said, for more money. They said, why are they paying you? I said, they're paying me a hundred and a quarter a week. Now, we're talking about money as it was related in the 50s. It was worth a lot more. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they said, well, we'll pay you the same thing if you'll come back to Nashville. So I came back to Nashville to WMAK, and by now it is uh, 1956, and uh, I... Uh, I'm not going to go into all the circumstances, but WSN had an opening for their all-night disc jockey position. And uh, WSN had a lot of my broadcasting heroes on it. And I... uh, Anyway, uh, I went up and applied for the job and the way they audition you, they put you on the air for a week. Mm-hmm. And if they liked you, uh, they would uh, hire you. And if they didn't care for you, uh, they would tell you. <laughs> well, I went and worked my week. And uh, then I went back to whatever else I was doing. And I got a call uh, a couple of days later asking if I would like to come to WSM full-time, and uh, this would have been uh, the fall of uh, 1957, I guess it was. So uh, I began uh, working on this 50,000-watt radio station that was heard over most of the United States, and I was 24 years old. What was really interesting about that job uh, it had no commercials when I first took it. Hmm. Uh, and uh, anyway, they had some PSAs. You know what a PSA is. Absolutely, yes. Public service. Mm-hmm. And so they had this book with these PSAs, and then they had the log, and I ran my own equipment. Anyway, they did not tell me to read these PSAs or when to read them. They just said, if you happen to read one of these, write it down on the log when you did it. And here I am, 24 years old, turned loose on one of the biggest radio signals in America Mm -hmm. and uh, given complete autonomy. Wow. That's really and cool. as I look back on that, I think that would never happen today. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. So, did you read any of those PSAs? Did you? Would you? Go oh yeah, them? every once in a while, uh, if the if the notion struck me, and then I uh, I set up a system of uh, an open door policy. If you came by the radio station, you could come on in. And if you made records, uh, sit down for an interview, and I would interview you and play your record. And uh, it helped to make the long night from 10 at night to 5 in the morning. It helped the long night to go faster. And I made a lot of friends that way and met, I met most of the talent of that era. 
Absolutely. And I'm sure you met a lot of people on that show specifically that were up and coming that that made it really big in country music and then later saw you on Nashville Now. Well, yeah, that's a short summary. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 1963, uh, they liked my voice, and so they put me on. WSM had a television station, Mm -hmm. and... uh, they really had nothing to lead in. We were an NBC station and had nothing to lead into the Today Show. Hmm. So they put me on to build a show uh, preceding the Today Show. And uh, I did that for quite a while. I did it twice. I, I did it uh, from 63 to about 68. And then they put me on in the afternoon. And I did that for all a year or so. And uh, then they took me off the afternoons and decided to follow that show, mm-hmm. and which was okay with me. And uh, I, uh, I took the job. Well, I, I continued my all-night show, and I got a job in New York for a company called Cinevox, and they were a syndicator. And uh, they had a good friend in Nashville named Jack Stapp. Mm-hmm. Jack Stapp was the founder of Tree International Music, one of the world's largest publishing companies. And Jack, uh, they asked Jack who he would recommend to come to New York and record once a week, uh, my syndicated radio show, which they, they, well, first of all, I had to go to New York and meet these people. Mm-hmm. And they seemed to like me. And uh, they said, Mr. Stapp, thanks a lot of you and uh, thinks you would work out beautifully for us. So we're offering you the job. And uh, so I kept that for about uh, almost two years, and then the fellow who was putting up all the money for this new company, the syndicator, mm-hmm. had a heart attack and died, and with him died the company. That's a shame. And uh, so I'm still doing uh, all-night radio, and uh, there was a syndicator in Nashville called Showbiz, and mm-hmm. Showbiz syndicated television and radio and they built the Porter Wagoner show mm-hmm. which was the most popular syndicated country music show of its era had a young girl named Dolly Parton on it <laughs> yep. and uh, anyway uh, showbiz uh, decided I could go to work for them uh, doing syndicated radio, country music. And uh, in Nashville, it was, it was a little different than in New York. I had access to all these stars, and I would have a country music star on each week. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would tape the interview part and pretend to play the records and uh, when the taping session was over, 
the engineer would mix the music in just as if he had done it while we were there. So uh, I was back in radio syndication again, and uh, in 1963, and uh, WSM Television offered me. I got distracted. I, anyway, they offered me the position of doing a show ahead of the Today Show on television, mm-hmm. and uh, met a lot of country music stars that way. Is that the morning show that Steve Hall crashed? Is what's the question? I said, is that the morning show that Steve Hall crashed with Shotgun Red? Oh no, that came much later. The uh, this show was called Opry Star Spotlight, or no, it's called it was called the Ralph Emery Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had. Uh, what they did, they made a deal with the Musicians Union and taped 10 songs with about 20 different uh, Grand Ole Opry stars. And I had a video library. I was a video jack and, uh, and didn't have any budget for any live music until about two years later when I finally got sick of those tapes, playing them over and over. And I talked them into letting me have a band. And uh, that show ultimately became the number one show in Nashville. And uh, it uh, was the highest rated locally produced television shows among those shows that preceded the Today Show all around America. We were the highest rated uh, introduction to the Today Show. That's incredible. I think that speaks to the popularity and staying power of country music. Yes. So, so how many iterations of the morning show were there? How many different versions? How many, uh, I don't understand the question. You said the morning show that Steve Hall crashed came much later. So I'm curious how many different morning shows you hosted before... Well, I did that show twice. I I told you that uh, Mm -hmm. they put me on the afternoon and then ultimately folded that show, I guess because of uh, expenses. Anyway, in uh, 1971 or two, I got a call from Channel 4 asking me if I would come back and do the morning television show again. It had kind of gone down the tubes. Didn't have any ratings. I said, you know, I've done that before, and... uh, I'm not all that interested in doing it again. Uh, people have always been nice to me. I said, tell you what, I'll do it for a year, and so surely in a year you can find somebody to do it on a regular basis. So they said, okay. And so that year ran on for all of the 70s, the 80s, 
and part of the 90s. It ran on for almost 30 years. It's amazing. Meantime, in, uh, in uh, 1983, they created the Nashville Network. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I was used to doing live television, they hired me to host the key show on that network called Nashville Now. And uh, so I was now doing two daily live TV shows, one in the morning for Channel 4 and one at night, same day, on uh, the Nashville Network. So I was busy. How did you find the energy to do it? I mean, how did you... It was I was sleeping in ships. <laughs> and uh, I was a workaholic, and it was difficult. Uh, what you're asking me, how, is, how did I find the energy? Uh, I just did. I wanted very much. To, I wanted the money, number one. Mm-hmm. I've got a family, and uh, uh, so I, uh, I did it for the money. Turned, it turned you into a legend, sir, if I may say. Uh, you you made a lot of people's careers in country music. Well, I, I, had a, I had a lot of fun, too. I worked with some great people and with a lot of country music stars. And with those two shows, I met and interviewed just about all of them. It's amazing. I'm curious what your advice is to somebody that wants to get into broadcasting, that wants to have a career and host many shows like you did, what would you say to them? Well, first of all, there is a huge myth that there's a lot of money in broadcasting, that you're going to get in broadcasting and get rich. That's not true. Particularly when you start, there are not any... uh, high-paying jobs. Mm-hmm. You have to work your way up to those. And uh, so you have to be willing to make a sacrifice. My first radio job paid me $45 a week and after taxes, thirty-nine fifty oh, wow. a week. And uh, from there, I went on to better things and more money. But it took a while. Mm-hmm. So I would say you got to have a lot, a lot of patience and uh, equip yourself with as much knowledge about your subject as you can. And that's the, one of the reasons I, I, I became sort of famous for my interviews. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of like going to college 101, uh, learning all about country music by talking to the stars. It's amazing. And and it shows, and especially with Nashville Now, the last thing I want to ask you about is a story that Steve Hall told me just yesterday, that they were going to destroy the Nashville Now library when Spike TV bought the Nashville Network, and you jumped in and saved those shows. Well, sort of. <laughs> You're giving me too way too much credit. <laughs> uh, my, 
I had a manager, and uh, he was also a lawyer, and he had been one of President Kennedy's uh, secret service men. And uh, he managed a number of country music stars, like Reba, and Reba star, <laughs> and some others. And uh, he took me on. And when uh, Nashville now, and he, he did my contract with TNN. <laughs> anyway, when uh, TNN was over, uh, we heard that, you know, uh, CBS bought TNN for over a billion, that's with a B, billion dollars. Wow. And the people used to say, why did they sell it? I said, well, Mr. Gaylord, who owns it, they offered him a billion dollars. Wouldn't you have sold it for, for that price? Anyway, CBS did not have a cable system, so they bought TNN, and it became the CBS cable system. And uh, anyway... We heard by the grapevine, I'm not sure how we heard this, but we heard that the lawyers who were advising the people who bought TNN to get rid of all those tapes, uh, cost you too much money to store them, and you don't need them, nobody wants to see them, it's just that old country music, and... Uh, there's no value to us. Hmm. So, anyway, long story short, uh, my manager, being a lawyer, went to their lawyers and uh, reminded them that storing all those tapes, over 10 years' worth of tapes, and remember it was five nights a week. Yeah. And, uh, Storing all those tapes cost them a lot of money, and they could get a wonderful tax write-off if they would give those tapes to the Country Music Association and to the Country Music Foundation, the home of the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. So, long story short, we worked out a deal whereby the people who owned the tapes, we talked them into giving them to the Hall of Fame, and that's where they reside today. That is an amazing story, one of many shared by a legend uh, in country music and in broadcasting. And uh, I think uh, I, I just, I really admire your work. You inspire me as an interviewer, and uh, you inspire a generation. So, Mr. Ralph Emery, thank you so much for your time here today. Mr. Emery, what an honor. I will be in Nashville very, very soon and I hope to chat in person. You can find clips of Nashville now by going to YouTube, and I, I've never actually told people to go to YouTube to find somebody's work, but I am telling you there is a lot of history in those shows, so if you're a big country music fan, as I hope you are if you're listening to this, go and check that out. That's it for us today. Thanks again to our season sponsors, Axtel Expressions and the Tangent Bound Network. Stay tuned to talkfor2.com, as well as Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for more from the number one performing arts podcast. Reach out by emailing talkfor2cast at gmail.com and talk about us on social media using hashtag talkfor2. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. 
You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. <laughs>